Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, as usual, episode 269, Thursday, November the 24th, 2022. We're heading towards the end of the year, Mark, already Christmas. It's getting quicker, it's getting faster, and how are you? I'm great, Brendan. I'm great. Have you got your Christmas tree up yet, or is it the December 1 rule in your house? That is a good point. I think we'll go back to, we didn't... I think I mentioned many, many, many podcasts ago that typically what we like to do is get to a pine tree. We get one of those, go to the, one of those Christmas tree farms and and grab one and do a, the Griswolds and and try and put it on the car and bring it home and and put it up in the land room. Um, although I'm for some reason I'm allergic to the pine needles, Mark. And I, after I put in it up, I get you know, all these little blisters <laughs> from my hands. <laughs> so I put gloves on. So we do have an artificial one that's a lot easier to put up, obviously, and then we pack it away in the box. But with COVID, the last two or three years, we didn't go for the, the a la natural one. So I think this year we will. So that's my long blurb about, yeah, I think we'll go for the traditional pine because there is something something about having that dead tree in your house <laughs> and the smell of the pine needles there, Mark, of the typical pine trees that we have here in Australia. So that is the plan, Mark, I will be doing. And obviously you'll probably have a little plastic one in your in your little travelling home, will you, or not? Um, we've, we've been talking about it these last few days, but I think we are going to have a little plastic one and and a few little lights and celebrate Christmas. Next to the fluffy dice, hang in um, around yeah. near the steering wheel there, Mark. Um, so, yes, good. No, well, you need to do something. You need to try and have a little bit of festive air, I think. You know, these days you need to make the most of every celebration, I reckon, um, that you can yeah, do. I agree and with speaking you. of celebrations, I've got um, – of I had a little visit, Mark, a bit of a shout-out to Kathy. Kathy came down, our friend – Kathy from Alice Springs, and she happened to be in Melbourne a week or two ago. And as you know, we caught up for lunch and very briefly chatted to her and picked her up and dropped her off at a station. And um, she was surprised. And, and I started complaining as we were driving, Mark, about because we've had all the floods <laughs> That's here. Not like you, Brendan. Yeah, all the floods in Australia and, well, southeast and eastern Australia, there's been lots of lots of wet weather. And the potholes, Mark, amazing amount of potholes, and I think you've had the same on your travels and in um, Newcastle as well where you are mainly based. So many potholes and driving to work one day, my car almost disappeared down a sinkhole <laughs> and scared the bejesus out of me. When, when, when I hit it, I didn't see it because I was driving, you know, if you've got a car, not, not when you're tailgating, but if you've got a car in front of you and they'd do a final, you know, sudden swerve to miss a pothole and you don't see it, gee, it's scary stuff. So lots and lots of potholes. And I was complaining about the potholes to to Kathy and she 
had a bit of a chuckle. She said, hey, oh, everybody in Melbourne's complaining about the potholes because <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they get too many potholes at, at, um, in Alice Springs, Mark. They probably get more ruts, Cor- those corrugations, corrugations along it. the road. The yes. Corrugations. It's sort of like longitudinal potholes that go for kilometres. <laughs> And do you know there's been there's been a few papers written on that. Um, there, I the, have read some of them. You know, trying to work out at what speed you should go or not go in order to avoid you know that shudder in every car. It's quite. Yes. I think we've chatted about it off air before, haven't we? So we won't bore our listeners with it, Mark, um, because they may then send an email to us at vetgurus at gmail dot com, which would be good that they do send an email, but don't complain. Just send an email about what you're up to and maybe a question about unusual pets or wildlife or or veterinary industry we would love that because we answer every single one of them so i think with that i don't have a review i've got to review potholes and i was going to talk to you quickly about um it's sort of a review yes uh i don't know a friend of the unusual pets and exotic and avian vets uh sig in Australia here is um, Alan Henderson, a friend of yours, Brendan, who lived in Melbourne for a while, uh, but has since moved to Cairns and and has a um, a business uh, dealing with invertebrates, and and it's a uh, you know a wonderful. Um, I think they do lots of supply for universities and some for the pet trade, and they breed captively. But um, I noticed that. Alan's daughter, Caitlin, has just been punching above her weight in the Psycom stakes. And I wanted to just, uh, I don't know, just do a shout out to anyone who's on social media who has an interest in invertebrates. They should definitely uh, sign up to, to um, I know you have uh, just, um, just recently had a look at her Facebook page and she does a massive job on TikTok, which I know you're on all the time, Brendan. So yeah, just a shout out the the what's her Facebook page, Brendan? She's got legs. It's called Australian Spider and Insect Photography. Yes, and I, I I've known her father Alan for many many years. Well before Caitlin was born, <laughs> he was the head of the live exhibits at Melbourne Museum. Mark, when they first um, re redesigned the Melbourne Museum and uh, moved it to the current site, Mark. I, I was fortunate enough to be asked to help out with the with the design and some of the construction of the, the live animal exhibit in the off-display area, and I still do some of the intermittent work for Melbourne Museum as, as um, a consultant vet for the Mark. And, yeah, Alan was very heavily into photography and, and invertebrates, and he's a an expert on invertebrates and he as you and I were speaking off here before we started Mark he gave a master class for us in at one of the Melbourne conferences and gee that was one of the best master classes I've ever been to when he brought out all these different spiders and invertebrates and we we learned all about them and their ecology and their husbandry it was fantastic so his yeah. his website I think is called mini beast Yes, and but um, yeah, just uh, Caitlin's um, usurping her father's um, excellent communication in science, and uh, particularly in the in the social media front, a bit of YouTube work, Facebook, TikTok. Yeah, 
anyone on those sites, check out Caitlin's um, invertebrate work. Yes. Good get, Mark. Good get. Now, we're going to jump into just one story because this this particular episode, we're just going to do a little bite hunt for you, a nibble, a little a nibble. nibble. It's going to be a slightly shorter episode. Well, although we've already been going for eight minutes <laughs> and we're just doing one news story, Mark, and I wanted to chat to you about this. It was just a little report um, via the Royal Veterinary College that did a study and published in the Trends in Parasitology, another journal that you subscribe to, Mark, talking about toxoplasmosis and cases were declining in humans in high-income countries, which was quite interesting. But they were noted an epidemiological peak shift, Mark, where more women contract the disease for the first time during pregnancy rather than before motherhood, which is certainly a concern. Isn't that a paradox, Brendan, that that the disease becomes less prevalent? And I think it's something like um, across most Western countries, about 30% of adults seropositive, that is they've been exposed and their immune systems have dealt with it, and only a very small percentage of people succumb to the disease. But as that percentage has dropped, the number of women who are becoming exposed for the first time during pregnancy has increased. And so there's this paradoxic rise in the complications associated with with toxo yes, during and pregnancy. The, the, I mean, it is still a a worrisome disease and the general general figures where it affects around 190,000 pregnancies globally every year where pregnant women become infected and of that about 19,000 annual reported cases where 3% of infected infants die before one month of age mark and sometimes before birth um, or they have have other issues there and the other the other part of this study is I were talking about that you know there's obviously they have a fair bit of information about more wealthy and high income countries but they still haven't got their finger on the pulse for the lower income countries and the prevalence and, and the exposure exposure trends in there. So they they said we really need to step up the game, which, you know, sounds pretty obvious because it probably is pretty obvious that the more wealthy countries um, do, do investigate and, and they have better health systems where they can detect and, and track these numbers, whereas the poorer countries um, struggle to do the basics for it. So, yeah. So that's that's the story, Mark, um, and we'll have a link to that um, by the Royal Veterinary College there. And... Um, you know, about time. I think your, your your subscription to trends in parasitology might need renewing. Re- needs renewing pretty damn soon, Mark. Um, yes. So, but you need to do that. So there we go. So let's jump into our little nibble here, Mark. And we wanted to chat about a, a, a specific aspect of wildlife care and, and wildlife presented to veterinary clinics and with a particular focus on veterinarians and, and clinics that don't see many wildlife and they they can make the the assumption or, or I suppose we could say the mistake of sometimes dealing with wildlife that and trying to save them when perhaps they're unsavable. And we're talking about old aged animals that are presented to a vet clinic. So we have geriatric animals that are end of stage or end of life and we'll 
mention a couple of the conditions or, or groups of conditions that they have. And many vets make the mistake of trying to save all wildlife and a, a, a fair percentage of these are presented and that um, are at that end of life stage. And they, they the bottom line is it's, it's time for them to, to have the green dream mark. Well, it's, it's certainly true, Brendan, that um, I suppose one of the most difficult things about being a veterinarian who sees wildlife is trying to, you know, I think there's every reason with a uh, an injury or disease process that's caused by uh, the interactions of humans, then it's almost part of our responsibility to uh, aggressively treat those animals. And that sometimes means humane euthanasia but when it's a natural process and the outcome would be the demise of the animal in the wild if it wasn't interfered with then I think and particularly old age is is that is a good example of that where an animal that's slowing or has some other complication associated with um, advancing years comes into contact with people. People are trying to help it, so they whack it in a box and convey it to the local vet. And I think it is important for the, the for uh, those veterinarians who are working with wildlife to be aware that just because that animal might respond to some fluids or uh, some um, superficial care, some initial uh, symptomatic treatment, that still might not be a reason to persist and and uh, aim for release. It might still be the best outcome to consider humane euthanasia. And I think there's two two big pressures too on, on the veterinarian or the clinic, Mark, with, with, with these cases. One is the public's perception that, you know, they'll drop off a, an injured koala or whatever iconic species it may be in the country that they're in. And the member of the public, they feel the pressure of that, you know, you, you need to treat this wildlife and get it back out there. Um, and the second pressure is, especially for those vets or clinics that aren't used to dealing with wildlife is that it's the unknown thinking that hey there must be some disease x in this animal and i need to treat it and get it back out there um, and they 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 don't realize that a fair percentage of these animals will be aged animals that have these these terminal illnesses or, or processes or diseases going on that we've struggled to well, we won't be able to fix and, and that it's time for that animal. So we'll, we'll just jump through a few of those obvious ones that we, we you and I have commonly seen with, with all species of wildlife, not just koalas, the ones I mentioned there, Mark. And I mean, the obvious one with koalas and some of these, these we see very commonly um, with, with the mammals, Mark, is dental disease in them, in that they have those end-stage dental disease ones. And, the, we, and you and I have seen those great charts that are available as far as ageing koalas based on, their, based on their, their cheek teeth wear. And we have these koalas that come in where they virtually don't have any cheek teeth molars left and it's, they just can't digest food anymore and they're emaciated animals from dent ongoing dental disease um and and there's really nothing you can do with them unfortunately because they can't that, have 24 7 supportive care and and it, you, that's precisely it brendan isn't it? it it is um nature's uh signal that that is their natural term and and like many situations we can manage to keep them alive but sometimes just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. Um, and the resources that are devoted to 
to keeping them alive and the suffering that they go through because of the ministrations to keep them alive, both those things are, you know, should be considered and, and very often when they are, the right thing to do is not do them. Yep, absolutely. So what else, what are the other common, we've got a few mentioned here, three main key ones I think there, Mark. What's the next one that we, we see with these aged animals as far as wildlife brought into the vet clinic? Well, I think the the the... The first two I like, the dental one you've mentioned, they, the reason I like you mentioning those is because they're the result of a thorough physical exam, you know, that if you find a cancer on an animal, find, find a neoplastic process or you find a dental issue, you can find those on physical exam. So you don't have to invest any more time than a thorough physical and then you can make the decision with that animal. And so... Uh, if you are interested and an animal does have a neoplasia, then you can still work that up and, and add that bit of information to the, the, uh, the literature, but that doesn't mean you have to keep the animal alive. Um, you can take those samples after a humane euthanasia, figure out what's happened and add that to the database uh, of that species, um, but you haven't put that animal through any distress to go through that process. So... Number one is dental disease, um, and particularly in those uh, animals like koalas that erode their teeth. And number two is uh, neoplasia. But then, Brendan, to go further, you really need to do some biochemistry, don't you? What other things would you look at for as signals of not going any further if you had the biochemistry on a patient? Well, you're leading me there, Mark, aren't you, as usual? Renal disease is the big one by far, and it's amazing how many of these animals. And the, again, the classic one that always jumps to my mind is is those mammals, and especially mammals like koalas, Mark, where and even even um, wombats as well. Renal failure, Mark. Renal yep. failure. Um, so we're we're looking at those renal markers and. Because that they, you know, why are these animals brought in? You know, getting back to basics, they're brought in because they're picked up by a member of the public. Why are they picked up by a member of the public? Because they're damn sick. <laughs> if a member of the public can pick up any of these animals, then it must be pretty damn ill. So you know, they're weak, they're emaciated, they 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 can't hide, they can't get away. They're just sitting there looking miserable, and then a member of the public picks them up and brings them in. Yeah, so getting back to basics with them, doing that thorough clinical exam, looking for any of that dental disease that you mentioned, getting some bloods from, and then that, that can be a bit of a challenge, can't it, Mark? And we won't go into detail here in this little bite we're doing, but or this nibble podcast, because it can be a challenge depending on what species you have there. But assuming we've got that blood, we, we run our general biochem panel, and it's amazing how many even come back with, with renal failure. So the other thing I was going to mention more broadly, I like those sort of general things, Brendan, but the, the chronicity of a disease process. So when we look at worn teeth or uh, um, neoplasia or um, uh, evidence of renal disease, these are all, they're all going to have other clinical signs, like you mentioned, emaciation, weight loss, chronic skin changes. The uh, chronicity of those disease processes will often give you a clue that um, you're not going to turn this around in an afternoon. You're not going to supply some fluid and have the animal bounce back to normal. So knowing the normal weights, knowing the, 
normal way to assess hydration and getting back to that physical exam, I think, can help significantly in making that first uh, um, decision about do we go ahead with this or do we not put an animal through something that um, that's not going to work? And I think it's always important with these wildlife cases to sometimes with with clients with the cat or the dog or the and, and any pet is to sometimes you have to be tough with them and and sit back and and make that decision and say what is the best for this animal what you know what is the quality of life and it's it's a hundred times um, more important to do that with wildlife because if it's not fit to survive back out there um, we make those decisions very early on with them we, we look at that you know short term medium and longer term with that wildlife that comes in and more often than not we're making a pretty pretty traumatic decision early on with them because you know if we know this animals yes we might get it over that you know acute acute um, renal failure episode that's happening um, in front of you but it still has chronic renal failure yeah. and potentially multiple organ failure and it's emaciated gee what's going to happen you you, you you bring it back from 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 the dead um, and rehydrate it um, what are you going to do with it the next day you're not going to release that koala or that animal back into the wild so so we make that decision before we go down that path of the treatment for them so I think it's really important to 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 look into the future with these animals and say there isn't a future for them yeah, and we yeah. need need to call it quits for them. And it's and make- significant, not it, it's obviously significant for the welfare of that animal. You don't want them to suffer any more than they absolutely have to and and uh, often that, you know, uh, a, uh, a, a, a quick humane euthanasia is often the best welfare outcome but also that animal if you're taking resources for its recovery then occupying a a space in a habitat for a short period of time before it has a painful death after a release you're interfering with other animals that might occupy that habitat in very limited space and so I think there's multiple reasons and multiple pressures on us as veterinarians to make that decision relatively quickly. Absolutely. And my final comment would be that you can explain that to the member of the public that's brought the animal in too, and it's remarkable how many of them, almost 100% of them, will, will agree once you've explained the aspect of, you know, we're doing the right thing by the animal, it's suffering, and and thanking them for bringing that animal into the clinic. And it may have spent a miserable few days or a few weeks or a few months if if we're lucky um dying a pretty horrible death and we've prevented that we've given it the chance we've assessed it and we've worked out that it is an age-related disease in this animal and and it needs to be euthanized good call brendan as i reckon you're exactly right the sophistication of the members of the public with regard to this problem has in my experience risen significantly and while there's always going to be the occasional unreasonable person, the vast majority of people, if you explain it to them, they completely are on board and and no one wants an animal suffering. And so if that's explained to them and that's the best outcome for the animal, most people are on board. Well said. Yes, and your clients are sophisticated, Mark, so I'm (laughs) sure you... you, cruise by with that um, decision with them i think with that we're out of here we'll talk to you all next week thanks for listening
to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.